Welcome to everyone. It's a great joy to see you all and to see so many faces who are back after some time and it's good to have you back in the family home and for those who are joining I hope you will feel at home if you're here for the first time somewhere deep inside you know it's not really the first time I wish I could go around the room and ask everyone who is here for the first time your name and ask everyone who is back how you are, but that would take uh, half the retreat, I think. So we will have to uh, start with the absolute level of truth in which we're all one. And so there is no difference. We all resonate as manifestations of the same infinite consciousness, which is also infinite love and infinite intelligence. So the theme of the retreat and the purpose of the retreat is to offer advanced training to spiritual revolutionaries. Now, how many of you here are spiritual revolutionaries? Yes? Okay. How many are would-be spiritual revolutionaries? Okay. It's an honest group. I like that. One of the uh, <clears throat> chants that we played in the uh, preliminary meditation was an old uh, mantra that goes, Asat O Ma Sat Gamaya, which means, From the unreal, lead me to the real. To me, that line sums up the meaning of being a spiritual revolutionary. You have or are in the process of shifting your consciousness from the unreal to the real. It's that simple. The other two lines of that mantra are, lead me from the darkness of the lowest state of consciousness to the light of pure spirit. Tamaso ma jyotir gamaya. And then the final line is amrityor ma amritam gamaya. From mortality, from the world of death, lead me to immortality to eternal consciousness. So all of these aspects of the shifting of consciousness from the lowest level that we tend to refer to as the ego or the jiva in Sanskrit 
through the second or intermediary level of soul or jivatma to the atman, the spirit, the self that is bodiless, formless, transcendent, and free of suffering, free of karma, free of limitation. We are that now. We have these three levels of consciousness always, but there are times, and that could be whole lifetimes, in which our focus is stuck at the lowest level of ego consciousness, and we identify with the mortal body. And when that happens, a certain kind of psychology gets activated, which we could call an animalistic psychology because it's an animal body. And that produces many uh, complexes that are based on fear of death, fear of pain, uh, attachment, lack, neediness. Uh, and that produces uh, desires, greed, and... Uh, uh, attachments that produce dependency and more neediness and a, uh, a kind of uh, a sense of inadequacy and eventually a sense of hopelessness. So we want to get out of the ego consciousness, which is not hard to do when you know that you're not the ego that that's simply an operating system that got installed in childhood to run the body and make it adapted to the demands of the family system and then the social system. But it has nothing to do with you. And so a spiritual revolutionary is one who climbs out of the ego box and begins taking a manual override at the soul level to change one's karma and enable one to then reach the highest level of pure spirit in which the consciousness is technically indescribable but the closest that has come and traditionally is used and is fairly accurate enough for our purposes is a state called Sat-Chit-Ananda. And this means a state that has the power of being. That's what Sat means, the real. And it has the infinite intelligence that is Chit that is the intelligence of that consciousness that has manifested the entire cosmos and sustains it and when it's exhausted destroys it and then recreates it anew in an ever more perfect form. This process is inherently embedded in the consciousness of each being because each being is a holon of the whole, a particle that is a microcosm of the macrocosm that contains all of that information and all of that uh, connectivity to the whole, 
but it lacks the power and it lacks the full access to the intelligence and the bliss, the ananda, the joy of the transcendent state because it is not yet free of the karmic identifications with the lower states. And so to be a revolutionary, we have to cut the umbilical cord, if you will, to the lower levels of consciousness so that we can know who we are at that absolute level in which we become fearless and noble and powerful and filled with unconditional divine love and joy. So those who want to live a life of that sort must be willing to do what is necessary to achieve success in the revolution of your own consciousness that will then be reflected as a revolutionary shift in the consciousness of the whole phenomenal plane because everything and everyone is connected to everyone else. Sheldrake calls it the morphogenetic field principle. But if one being makes a shift to another vibrational frequency that's higher, that brings more coherence, more happiness, more beauty into the world, that tends to get shared, transmitted, and disseminated out until it becomes a new baseline for the whole, for, for the whole uh, planetary consciousness. That's the movement that we are now in and able to contribute to if we are willing to uh, to make the sacrifices that are also involved in the uh, the revolutionary shift which is not really a sacrifice because you're sacrificing only your suffering but egos tend to become uh, attached to their suffering it's a comfort zone of discomfort that is at least known and there's a fear of the unknown within the ego. So if we're willing to overcome that fear, then the transformation to the highest levels becomes easy. But the difficulty is that the ego is attached to other people in the phenomenal world who may not understand your desire to become a spiritual revolutionary. And so it may require you to be willing uh, to look like you're crazy <coughs> to other people. <coughs> and uh, if you have the courage to individuate and differentiate from other people and from the way other people think of you, and go through the full metamorphosis, those beings will also be helped and served by your change. But they may resist it at first because it threatens uh, their comfort zone and complacency and, uh, and puts the, uh, uh, the, the, the truth out there to them so that this imperative of transformation then uh, has to be faced by these others as well.
We are in a time, I'm sure I don't need to explain in any detail for anyone who reads the news, even the, <clears throat> the, the pretty inadequate and, uh, and, and inaccurate news of the mainstream media, uh, that the world is going through rapid changes and these changes are bringing about a uh, decomposition of society as we have known it and a, a, a decomposition of the web of life within the environment of our planet in a very rapid uh, succession of events that continue to occur that are bringing about cataclysmic changes in the world. And in order to be able to deal with those uh, in a coherent and beautiful way and make uh, the best use of these changes to help the trajectory of the karma of our uh, species reach the optimal outcome. If we are in that state of consciousness in which there is benevolence and compassion and joy and intelligence, we can use these events in order to direct a, a shift that will benefit everyone. But most people, as we go through the series of events that we are about to face, uh, will, uh, will fall into states of anxiety, if not terror and confusion and dread and despair and all of that. So it's, we're at a moment where it's very important to have your own light shining and be able to share that light and that inner peace with others and to be able to guide others who will not understand the um, benevolent nature of what's happening and consider it to be some kind of a very... Uh, evil doom that we face, but it's actually a, uh, a shift from uh, a provincial childhood as a species to becoming true uh, citizens of the cosmos at a much higher level of consciousness than we have been resonating at before. And these events are forcing us to make this transformation. So it is a blessing, even if it's in somewhat of a disguised form. And I hope that that will become clear because that's the job of spiritual revolutionaries to guide the outcome of this uh, collapse of the current world order to bring about a much more beautiful world order that is uh, based on truth and love and God consciousness. But we have to be authentically in that state if we want to participate in that. I read some of the uh, essays that some people wrote in their application <clears throat> and several of them said, uh, I'm sick and tired of theory. I just want to get to the higher state. And I have to disappoint you that I'm going to have to present some theory in this uh, retreat. But it's not at the expense of getting to the higher state. <clears throat> it's in the service 
of, uh, of being able to understand the unreal <clears throat> and the real in order to make that shift uh, happen more easily. And the reason why it's important to be able to deconstruct the unreal is that the only obstacle to achieving liberation now, while alive, in fact, in this moment, is the internal resistance of the ego and of the soul. If those resistances can be deactivated, depotentiated, then the flow of the, the Shakti, the Kundalini, will bring us to uh, the enlightened and liberated state very easily, very quickly. So I would like to give a, a bit of a picture as to <clears throat> what the obstacles are at the lower levels and the general uh, process and pathway of uh, shifting to the, uh, to the higher levels and what uh, issues we must face and overcome if we're going to succeed in doing that. So, let's begin. call this first uh, module the seven stages of soul development. The soul is a vehicle, a subtle vehicle of consciousness that has a trajectory through time. Your soul has brought you from one lifetime to another. But each time that the energy of your consciousness descends into a body, usually in utero, and, uh, <clears throat> and begins to grow in the, in the mother's uh, womb, it develops a, an ego that is disconnected from the soul and uh, that is responsive to the, uh, the thoughts and the emotions of the mother and then of the father and of the family system and it identifies with its body. So the ego uh, loses touch with the soul, but the soul is always able to come into play if it is willing to awaken. So there's a dialectical relationship between soul and ego that if we understand it, it helps us to... Uh, it helps the soul to bring the ego up and even to, to dissolve it into, uh, into higher consciousness and let go of its, uh, its traces of false identification. <clears throat> but in the first stage, we could call it a lazy soul. If you have a lazy soul, 
it means that you're still in denial of the need to transcend the ego. You still are comfortably numb, as Pink Floyd would probably put it. Or even if you're uncomfortably numb, uh, you still don't want to, uh, to make the move out of the ego because uh, you'd become too different. Uh, you, would, uh, you would face challenges. You'd have to you know, do some inner work. You'd have to face uh, your shadow. All of those uh, psychological resistances keep the lazy soul in denial of the urgency of transcendence of its illusory identity. But <clears throat> the world is designed in such a way that your karma will eventually not allow you to stay uh, in that state without producing so much suffering that you are forced to uh, try to find a way out. That's usually what brings people to a place like this. Uh, they've come out of the, uh, the laziness. They have to do some work because there's too much suffering, too much confusion, too much lack, uh, too much uh, uh, of a sense of the hopelessness of life and, and the too muchness of it, I, the too much I can't cope with it-ness of it, if I can use that kind of language. <laughs> But then one gets to the second level. Which is that of the guilty soul. <clears throat> and when one gets to that level, one wishes one had never left the first level. <laughs> Interestingly, on Christmas, we had two little playlets performed. Uh, the second one was about the lazy soul, and the first was the guilty soul. <laughs> I won't say whether the people who are involved in each play are in that level, but um, they can decide that for themselves. Uh, I made a few notes about uh, the nature of the guilt, because I think it's important. And I think here, um, psychoanalysis has given some information about the structure of the ego that can help us to understand the guilt, because not everyone has the same uh, kind of guilt uh, as, as the other has. And that's, in a way, uh, part of the reason we have difficulty communicating with each other. Uh, we, we have a different uh, a sense of, of what we're guilty of. Of course, Ultimately, the guilt is that there is an unsublimated excess of what Jacques Lacan calls jouissance. There's an enjoyment at uh, the lower chakra levels, at the sensory bodily level of the animalistic nature, and that enjoyment produces always a backlash of suffering. But there's an addiction to the enjoyment, even though... Uh, it produces suffering. But as uh, Freud uh, observed, and I think it's one of his, uh, his lasting achievements, even though Freud was wrong about a lot of things, uh, but uh, that 
psychoanalysis uh, continues to affirm and I think has a, a validity. Uh, unlike the, uh, the psychiatric establishment, which if you read their um, diagnostic manual, there are hundreds if not thousands of mental illnesses that you can probably find yourself you know, belonging to or, or suffering from, and they have pills for everyone, uh, but, but no real uh, solution to them. But for Freud, uh, you suffer either from hysteria, uh, obsessiveness, uh, perversion or psychosis. That's it. Okay, take your choice. But those—that's uh, those are the ice cream flavors available, and uh, pretty much every ego chooses a, a different one of those four flavors. Although these days, because egos are so fragmented, you can actually have one fragment that's hysteric, another that's perverse, and etc. So it, things have gotten a little more complicated than in the Victorian days when uh, Sigmund was working with all those uh, young ladies who uh, had hysterical paralysis and all of that. But the hysteric, it's still a valid, uh, uh, let's say, mode of a consciousness or way of being that is very common, probably the most common of all of the... Uh, the normal pathologies, and although it's named after the, the female uterus, the hystera, it, it, of course men are as much uh, hysterics as women, especially nowadays that genders have been deregulated, etc., and the, the relationship of, uh, of men and women has changed from those days. But what basically the hysteric uh, way of uh, approaching life is is first you uh, you project a bad object out there, which is someone you can uh, justify being angry at and hating, and you uh, then have a good object who you're protecting from that bad object, and uh, you have a nice rescue fantasy in regard to the good object, and. Uh, and, and then, of course, you have to face the fact that your desire for the protection of the good object actually has uh, some nefarious subconscious agendas, which is that you have an overwhelming uh, desire to have some jouissance with the good object. And uh, that jouissance, of course, uh, in normal situations, ends up uh, gradually, if not quickly, destroying the relationship. Because when you start getting into, uh, into very um, uh, intense sexual relations with someone, you tend to fall to the lowest level of consciousness. You become needy or you become very uh, aggressive. You, 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 you fall into a state where love disappears and desire uh, takes its place, but desire is always accompanied by anger because there's frustration that you're not getting what you want in the way you want it, and eventually uh, you end up having negative projections and the good object becomes the bad object, and then uh, pretty soon uh, it becomes indifferent and uh, there's a breakup and very often a breakdown. And, uh, and of course, if this is something that's happening when you're living in an ashram, it's even worse because you know too much, 
uh, you've taken vows and you don't want to uh, break all of those, but also you know that if you left and went to have a life of jouissance out there, it wouldn't work anyway, and, and your life would end up in a, a total ruin. So this becomes a nightmare zone for those who uh, suffer from the hysteric way of living. How many people can relate to that? Okay, I won't take names, but that's, uh, that's probably the most common uh, modality of suffering within the ego. And then you have the obsessive, um, let's say, uh, modulation of the same mode of life, but here you're, uh, you're trying to control your jouissance by creating proxies, by creating methods in which you fail to achieve your goal and, uh, and you replace it with various uh, superstitions and obsessive tendencies, uh, compulsions, etc. to try to, uh, to prevent the ultimate uh, self-ruination. But uh, that, of course, uh, leads to uh, kinds of acting out which are just as bad, if not worse, as, as those of the hysteric and eventually uh, produces a, a breakdown because of too much tension and stress and inability to, uh, to, to live, to manage one's life because one has had to create too many uh, defensive uh, tendencies that are uh, ego dystonic and also uh, that get in the way of, uh, of living a normal life. Uh, the pervert is one who uh, feels guilty for uh, what they, the way that they have their jouissance, which is basically to try to seduce others to enjoy uh, the same jouissance and to, uh, to slime others and attack them and, uh, and try to bring others down. Uh, to to the same kind of a low level that one feels oneself at, and so it's that that kind of a, a moral perversion as well as a sexual one that is uh, is the bane of the uh, conscience of the one who is uh, trapped in that mode of life, and of course the the psychotic attempts to avoid all of this by destroying his or her sanity but realizes that they are guilty for that. But once you throw away the key to your, your sane mind, it's very hard to get it back. And so there's a, there's a kind of self-hatred and hatred of the world uh, and a guilt for that that takes place at different levels of one's consciousness. So this kind of, of guilt uh, tends to uh, produce uh, compensatory actions like uh, taking anti-anxiety pills and antidepressants and alcohol and other addictive processes to try to uh, uh, buffer the pain of one's uh, self-inflicted uh, uh, hell realm that one can't find a way out of. So the most common way is to take the next step.
and, and then you become a processing soul. You go into therapy of some kind, right? That's a multi-billion dollar industry. Uh, although today people tend to prefer coaches, I'm finding, and coaches are, are people who will probably collude with your ego and give you a hug and soothe you rather than uh, help you face uh, the horror that's in the subconscious uh, tendencies. So they're not all that useful in most cases. But if you actually begin to process the structure of consciousness that has led you into uh, a loss of free will to, uh, to have a life that's more meaningful and not based on desire and the impulse and drive towards jouissance, then uh, you... Uh, you gradually, by, by bringing it to consciousness, by bringing the whole uh, understanding of why you are uh, behaving the way you are and why you're having the impulses and the dreams and the uh, uh, tendencies to form uh, relationships that are dysfunctional and repeat the same kinds of dysfunctional relationships over and over again, the more that that gets processed, uh, the more conscious you become of the operating system of the ego, the more margin of freedom you have to begin to change it. So it, it works if you pursue the process of, uh, of becoming conscious of the, of the structure of the ego in a diligent way and, uh, and don't... Uh, allow yourself to, uh, to deceive yourself and, and fall back into uh, comfortable mythologies that support the ego. Uh, but the debt of guilt has to be paid because one also feels like one has harmed other people in one's way of life. And as long as you uh, also are holding on to some sense of, of that, then uh, the conscience is going to continue to bite. When, when all of that has been dealt with, then you become a burning soul. Okay? The burning is a very important phase. And that's why we have... Uh, so many of these uh, uh, celebrations, like Burning Man, right in Nevada, and uh, and celebrations of holidays, uh, of festivals of lights, and we have sacrificial fires in in most religious traditions, etc. Because uh, the uh, the state of burning is the necessary intensification of processing when there when passion is added to it, when you're not just doing it because you have to, but you have gained a passion for liberation from the ego, then uh, that will keep you one-pointed and focused on breaking free of it, and you will feel literally a burning sensation, often in the brain and, and sometimes all over the body, uh, and there will be a, a, a burning desire for liberation. And that's when things tend to accelerate and, and happen in very miraculous ways because you're now entering into a non-ordinary uh, level of reality.
So that's when uh, freedom is, uh, is already uh, accessible if that burning continues. If you let everything burn, if you burn away the whole ego and the soul itself as the subtle vehicle of the ego, you, you can actually reach an egoless state of consciousness and a soulless state. It's not soulless in the negative sense, but it's soulless in the sense of eliminating the uh, illusion of a, a perspective that is individual and separated from the whole and that is based in the physical organism. Your consciousness becomes omnicentric and, uh, and, and you reach a state of internal silence. That's what you want to do in meditation. Silent, wakeful presence to the source of your consciousness. And you, you can reach that through the, the completion of this burning process in which the sanskaras or the tendencies that would cause the repetition of uh, forms of suffering will have been uh, completely incinerated and, uh, and you'll be released from it forever. At this level, there is not a sense of, uh, of a personal I. And so some people get scared at this, at, at this point because it literally is depersonalization. But if you go into it properly, it's a very benign depersonalization because you are becoming attuned to the cosmic consciousness. And so if, you're, if you understand it properly, you're not confused by it, you won't fall into psychosis, which is a very malignant form of depersonalization, but instead you'll be able to reach God consciousness and become stable there. And then, And then you'll be able to bring this infinite consciousness back into the, uh, let's say, the embodied and ensouled uh, relationality in the world, but no longer with the old identity remaining. So the capacities are there that you had within the ego and the soul but it has been purified of all identification, and now it is the unidentified, undifferentiated consciousness that functions through the, uh, the physical particular uh, organism, but the consciousness remains universal. This is the state that someone like Sri Ramana Maharshi got to and, and Ananda Maima, the great sages, are in that state and therefore uh, one can relate to them uh, in, in such a way that, that one is uh, 
feels the vibrational frequency of liberation and bliss and, and freedom that uh, is uh, contagious and one wants it and one, one soaks it up. And then finally, <clears throat> one reaches a, a level that I will just call the absolute which is indescribable, in which there is a non-duality of the duality of life and the non-duality of nirvana, of the, of the transcendent state. And that transcendent state <clears throat> is such that it is beyond the world. It has no world. It has no otherness to it. And yet, one is also in that state where one sees everyone as a reflection and a manifestation of the oneself that you are. So you're in the multiplicity, but you're in it seeing infinite reflections of the oneself in all of its possible permutations, and all of its uh, infinite uh, capacity for beauty and for, uh, for manifestations of genius and <laughs> unique uh, uh, forms of, uh, of, of the unfoldment of infinity within a grain of sand, within a, an individual being, and, and, uh, and life becomes uh, the most beautiful and miraculous, astonishing, uh, unfoldment of, uh, of, of God consciousness and of wisdom and of love that is imaginable. So it's, it's an ultimate state of bliss and of intelligence and power. That's where uh, we are headed and that's our destiny because that's what we were born for. We're designed for that. And uh, this is the moment of the spawning season of uh, liberated angels out of the cocoon and out of the caterpillar state of the ego. And now is the moment, historically, when it is necessary for us to uh, fly into that infinite level of consciousness and be able to offer the, uh, the grace of liberation to all beings. And so, because it is our destiny, there is a force within us that is, is pushing us and lifting us toward that uh, ultimate end state of absolute presence. And it's not something that we can do through our own willpower at an ego level. But through the surrender of the ego to this immense power, the grace is given to receive liberation from the illusion. So the final point comes in the question, are you ready to surrender to that power that is supreme? Are you ready, willing, and uh, courageous enough to leap into the unknown and trust that everything in life, no matter how it seems from an ego perspective, is a blessing and you are being guided through the 
choreographic work of the ordainer of all of the uh, movements and events that take place on this phenomenal plane, none of which are random, none of which are accidents. Uh, and if you allow yourself to go without resistance uh, in the flow of uh, the, uh, the shift of consciousness once the mind is silent, the pathway will open to you without question or doubt or fear and you'll be led to that internal place that we can call a kingdom of heaven that is the the opening of the third eye and the ability to see uh, the real and uh, to be done with the unreal and to discover that the real and the unreal are actually not different and yet completely and utterly different. It's that paradox that is the, uh, one of the reasons for the great joy that comes from liberation. And because when you look in someone's eyes, if you look deeply enough, you will begin to see each other like two mirrors that are put uh, face to face, where if you look in one, you will see your own reflection an infinite number of times back and forth in both of these mirrors. In the same way, you'll be able to see infinity and the one self in everyone, in every moment, in everything, everywhere. The infinite depth and richness and uh, the infinite quality of consciousness and its capacity for self-similarity at every level. Uh, Benoit Mandelbrot, a great mathematician, discovered what we now take for granted as fractals. The universe is fractal in nature, which means it is self-similar at every scale. Whether we're talking about galaxies or atoms or subatomic uh, quantum wave functions, or we're talking about the, the virtual realities of the psychology of the ego or the soul or any uh, levels uh, in between and beyond, we're seeing the same kind of internal patterns. And the universe is revealed as information that is uh, structured as a whole. And suddenly all of the dots are connected. Everything is understood and clear. And the, the game of trying to figure things out uh, is complete, it's over. And there is a, a graduation to a, a completely new level of reality that cannot be imagined by the ego or even the soul because it's beyond the event horizon of those levels of consciousness. And this is what we have to look forward to when we make this shift completely but it, it cannot be uh, depicted for you in advance in any more than a, a kind of a skeletal way because of the infinite richness of one's experience and imperience, one's, uh, one's depth perception of reality that uh, is multidimensional 
and one is able to perceive presences that are in this space that the ego can't see. The ego can see bodies at a certain vibrational frequency that shows up in the visible spectrum of light, etc. But it won't see ghosts or angels or other beings. It won't see the bardo states. It won't see the various other aspects of reality that are present but are not within the sliver of consciousness that is accessible to the ego or even the slightly larger slice that the soul is able to grok. But it becomes uh, all of it infinitely present and real and uh, beautiful. So the, the benefit, the grace that comes of liberation from the blinders that the ego identification and even the soul creates that freedom is worth whatever price you have to pay. And it's not really much of a price since it's only suffering that you're giving up. <clears throat> but know that you can give it up here and now. It doesn't take time. It's not some long, difficult journey of uh, picking through every uh, knot and every particle of dirt in the ego. It, it's a matter of simply disidentifying from all of it at one stroke if you want to. Okay, I think that's pretty much what I have to say as an introduction to this retreat. I hope that it doesn't uh, scare you off from the process and that it actually uh, encourages you to take the leap. But it's a very easy leap to make. It's only going within to discovering who you are. Uh, not who you think you are, not the images you have of yourself or the concepts or the signifiers other people told you in the past that you were, but who you really are free of all of that unencumbered absolute presence without ideas and emotions and uh, uh, traces of negative uh, affects and, uh, and, and, and the sense of guilt that comes from whatever past uh, events and uh, melodramas one was involved in. But that freedom of presence now is able to let go of all of that and, and doesn't have to hold on to any identity, and certainly not an identity as a sinner or as someone who is not worthy of uh, liberation or, or any other uh, negative kind of uh, uh, self-attacking uh, thought forms. And it, once you know that none of those have validity and you stop making your superego into your God, you will find that freedom is very easy to achieve because it's your natural state. Okay, I'm done. <laughs> Floor is open. If anyone has any questions, comments, or anything you'd like to share, don't be shy, please. Including the Vasis. Hey, Yogi Raj, welcome home, Yogi Raj. Okay, what's up? The, um, can you say the passion that you're speaking, at, speaking about between the processing soul and the burning soul is the epistemophilic? drive? Like is that the mm. upper death drive? 
and also surrender, kind of like all the same thing? Well, actually, what it really is, is that you, you activate chakra four and you're in a state of love for God, okay? Because the ego doesn't have love. It's, it's dominated by hatred and power, tripping and control and anger, all of that. So when that shifts, then it's, it's really your love and your devotion and your, your yearning to be one with that source that brings the, the burning to its intense form. It's a passionate burning of, of the desire to consummate your union with God. Okay, the passion is not coming from getting insight into the false nature of the... That's, that's the beginning of it. That's the beginning of it. But the, the second phase is you get insight into the real. Um, so, yes, the processing of the unreal happens, but that's usually a matter of, oh my God, do I have to see that? Uh, but then, oh, I really want to see and feel the bliss of God consciousness, right? That's the real self. So that brings a whole different kind of motivation into play. And that's where the, the burning really becomes powerful. I feel like I remember Klein saying that there's like this constant movement between the paranoid schizoid and then depressive positions. Is that just to generate the guilt in order to get out? Yeah, that's at the lower state. That's, that's the guilty uh, soul level. But once you start processing it, you generally will not fall back into that paranoid schizoid place anymore. And once you stop acting out the jouissance, you can pretty much you know, be free of this oscillation, this bipolar kind of uh, uh, consciousness. And, and then you want to stabilize in a state of love and peace and, and joy. So uh, it, it, that... Kleinian level of uh, that she was describing is uh, is is a very primitive level of consciousness, and this is the problem with psychoanalysis: is its theory says that's it, you can't go beyond that. Really, you know, the, that's the best you can do is is feeling uh, the depressive uh, state. But of course, it's not. It's you want to get past that into the joy of life, and, and analysis won't get you there. But the love of the real will. Okay. Yes, Geta. Uh, understand well the resistance of the ego, but you talked about the resistance of the soul. Mm -hmm. And it's not clear the resistance of the soul. Right, because if you're still in ego consciousness, you're not aware directly of the soul's resistance. But if you ask, why is the soul allowing the ego to still continue suffering? Why, why isn't it intervening, right? People are always asking, why isn't God coming and helping me to do this? It's really their own soul, but uh, they, the, the soul is not yet motivated to, uh, to uh, eliminate this ego identity because the soul is still also enjoying uh, the ego's Still, uh, they are Yes, yes, they are, and, and there is learning that happens. You know, when when you're in ego consciousness, you learn from experience, or at least you can learn from experience, and uh, and there's a level of learning that uh, until it has completed its, um, uh, let's say the the learning of what it needs to know to feel like it's able to graduate from that level to the next usually the soul isn't going to intervene. But what will happen is the, the soul will create certain synchronicities in your life 
that bring about situations that challenge you and force you to learn faster things you didn't think you would have to learn or have to face. And, and usually uh, by getting through those rites of passage, then the soul activates and, and uh, lifts you out of the ego. Mm-hmm. Sorry if I didn't catch it. What does end soul mean? It means you're, en- you're not identifying as the soul, but the consciousness of the infinite self is coming into uh, ensoulment or embodiment, both actually, uh, and you're operating as if you're the same individual you were before, but that individual is gone, but now another consciousness is operating the vehicles both the subtle vehicle so that your, your internal uh, consciousness um, can change the dreams and the visions and the, uh, uh, the, the extrasensory perception, let's say, of what's happening in the world, as well as the, uh, the, the conscious activity that enables behavior to go on accurately without glitches and conflicts. There seems to be a, a misunderstanding between the two, like love and lust, for instance. Uh-huh. Often hate is depicted as the opposite to love. But it seems in this particular instance that maybe lust is something that feeds the ego, or mm-hmm. confuses the, the, the love relationship. There seems to be some kind of, of confusion over the difference between <coughs> lust and love. Lust keeps one trapped in ego. Uh-huh. That's right. Yeah, I, I wouldn't say it's uh, confusion. I would say it's bad faith. That the ego prefers its lust uh, to love because love means you have to consider the other and, and, and to not treat them as an object. And if you want to, to treat them as an object because that's what you're lusting after, then uh, you have a, a conflict of two different value systems. And the, the value system that... Uh, encourages and uh, justifies a lustful attitude toward the other is a very different level that from the place of love which seems totally unethical and, uh, and animalistic and, and, uh, and evil even in the sense of uh, degrading the other and defiling the other by uh, uh, projecting that they are simply a body that can be used for your own enjoyment. So this is, uh, this is a a conflict that creates guilt. So it's not simply a confusion. It's a, it's a failure to live at the level that enables you to be able to love and relate to others as manifestations of divine presence. Okay. Yeah. Can you explain the hysteric uh, picking mm-hmm. a bad object, recruiting mm-hmm. a good one, and then wanting reasons from it? I think you caught me when you said sexual relationship because not all hysterics are in sexual relationships. That it can happen in a non-sexual context unless everything in the ego is sexualized. In the ego, everything is sexualized, even if it's at a fantasy level. It may not be an actual relationship. And you know, for Freud, all sex is masturbation because there is no relationality. It is at a lustful level, and it's it's a matter of uh, of relating. Uh, a fantasy of doing something to an object or being an object uh, that something is done to and creates uh, a, a, a sense of uh, conquest of the one who has 
been seduced or, 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 or brought into a, a state of irresistible desire or need, etc. But, uh, but all of this, uh, all of the ways that the ego relate are psychosexual in nature. And then one other question uh, in the recently, not even in, I mean, it's the past, but you had said to me that uh, the hysteric is based more on projecting out a false master who then she becomes, she, he, disappointed when the master reveals themselves not to truly know anything and then she falls into hysteria. Well, again, that's, that's part of the, uh, the, the projection of the good object. The good object can either be the master or it can be the sleeping beauty or, or the white knight. or It has all of these different phantasmatic uh, permutations. But it comes down to the same uh, disappointment when the veil of the positive projection falls and, and one... Uh, realizes that one is dealing with someone completely different than the one you imagined you were with. You said that um, this is a moment in history when one needs to have one's own light uh, shining. Mm -hmm. Would that be the, um, the infinite in souls? Mm -hmm. Yes. I, I think it's not until that level that spiritual revolution can begin. Mm -hmm. Right? because otherwise you're still tied to the old uh, conservatism of the ego and, and you're not free enough to, to create a new order. So yes, that's the, that's the stage we have to get to as a minimum. So this inner light um, that you mentioned is in a first, I don't want to say first stage, but at least at a certain level is a protection so that one can navigate through the times that we're living. But at, at another level, it's, uh, it's the uh, capacity to help others or to create or co-create a new world. Uh, how, how would you uh, explain this, this light that one needs to... Well, it's, if, you, if you put it in a religious context, it's the light of God, the light of truth, <clears throat> the light of uh, knowledge as to how reality works and therefore how it can be transformed in a way that serves the best interests of all of the, the manifestations or centers of consciousness, let's say within the etheric field or the quantum unified field, to use that metaphor uh, as science is now offering uh, that understanding. But it's, uh, it's the light of, of the the substance of reality, that which substands and underlies everything we perceive. Mat what we call matter is frozen light. It's all light. And, and the awareness that perceives the light is the reciprocal of the light. They are not different. Light and awareness are one. Without light, there's no awareness. Without awareness, there's no light, etc. So that, that duality, which is also the duality of Shiva and Shakti, uh, that is the, uh, the play of, uh, of forces. It's also, you could say, the magnetism of the North and the South Pole or the yin and the yang. It, it happens, again, because of the fractal nature uh, at every level. This uh, duality that is non-dual appears and, and is functioning, but it's really uh, the motivating energy comes from that highest level of the... Uh, 
the, the cosmic light and the awareness that has emanated that light that contains intelligence and information. And because it's transtemporal, it seems from within it that we're moving through time, but all time is present from that higher dimension of the awareness in which the, the, the universe from alpha to omega point is always completely present. Okay. But that light now, is, the, the laser light of that consciousness is now shining on the centers that are in this phenomenal plane that are ripe enough to awaken because they are now needed to complete a, a cosmic function or at least a planetary function that is, uh, uh, is um, embedded in the, the structure and nature of reality itself. Mm -hmm. uh, what you talk about sounds like a really good deal. <laughs> uh-huh, it uh, is. I mean, all we have to do is give up ego, our identification with the, with the ego. Right. Um, and it's available to all of us right here, right now. So, my question is, why must it be so difficult? <laughs> talk about a fear of death. I mean, it must be, ego must have a function to keep us from alive, you know, in a body form. Mm -hmm. Why can't we? Why aren't more people just giving up the ego and, and transcending? Well, <clears throat> I think we're in a process uh, that I, I will often use the metaphor of uh, of making popcorn in hot oil, and it takes a long time for the oil to get hot enough that that each kernel starts to pop, and you get one at a time, and eventually a few, and then pretty soon they're all popping. I think we're now in the phase where the, the stresses, the tensions, the pressures in the world, the heat uh, of the, uh, the imminent collapse of the global financial system and everything, all the, the family systems and couple relationships and all of it coming apart is, is causing uh, some uh, of these uh, kernels to pop. But so far, still only a few. But as we go on, there will be an exponential increase. And I think by next year, uh, this time, you won't ask that question because there'll be lots of people awakening. And the people who are not awakening will wonder what's wrong with me that I'm not. And I see other people who are uh, uh, transforming their lives. So it is going to, to speed up. It's, things will not remain as they are now. But we have been in a downward curve of uh, devolution uh, to this point, and now we are shifting into an upward phase. It, it's a curvature, right? We've gone to the trough, and now we're going up. And so there's an entirely different uh, negentropic uh, force uh, that is countering the, the tamasic entropy of the ego and, and bringing us to that, that next level. Uh, to no credit to the ego itself, but that, that is what's happening. And, and those with good karma are those who reach that point where they have to transform sooner and they become, in a way, pathfinders and guides for others. But uh, eventually it will be, uh, it'll be global. Okay. Can we bypass the few... Uh... <laughs> sure. You are the absolute right now. And so if you're willing to silence your mind, yes, you be liberated this evening. Yes. You said understanding the dialectical relationship between soul and ego helps us to let go of any traces of false identification. Can you explain that a little? What can I understand? 
Okay, it's um, it's a complex and profound question that you're asking, because uh, your your soul is communicating with your ego uh, constantly, but especially at night in dreams. When you're asleep, you're receiving information in your dreams, and if you can understand those dreams accurately and use that information to change your waking life, then you'll get a different dream the next night that will take you to the next level and the next. So the, the soul is using not only dreams, but especially dreams as ways of getting you dialectically to shift the ego into soul consciousness and then beyond, right? So the, it, it is happening. It's also happening in the waking state because you will have synchronicities. You'll also have like, karmic events uh, of uh, maybe uh, hurting yourself or forgetting something or meeting someone that uh, you, you shockingly hadn't seen in a long time and has something to tell you that will change your life or something. These kinds of events that are unpredictable but that, uh, that shift your consciousness by giving you new information and new challenges uh, uh, are, are given by the soul. And so that, that uh, causes a, a constant morphing of your sense of who you are if you pay attention. And so that's where the dialectic is, is happening. And it requires a, a very vigilant sense of attention and interpretation of these synchronicities and the dreams and the visions and the other non-ordinary experiences that you may uh, find uh, you go through in a day. And if you do pay attention, then uh, doors will open to, to other kinds of events that will take you even higher. We are going to uh, be doing a lot more than theory in this retreat. We're going to be practicing. Every meditation should be a time when you uh, focus on realizing consciousness in itself, not consciousness thinking about something else, not consciousness uh, in a state of desire or fear, but consciousness that is the witness to itself that's focusing on its own source. So that's what we want to do. It's like the image of the Ouroboros. You've probably seen in alchemical drawings the snake that swallows its own tail, right? That's what we want to do. We want consciousness to become aware of itself until you reel yourself in and get to the very center point of your own conscious presence, and then stay there. And then the, if you stay there long enough, the, the ego illusion will simply fall away. So in every meditation that we're formally sitting, bring yourself to silence, ask the question, who am I, if you want, but then don't keep talking, just be the I that is the, the core sense of, of what you are at any moment. And, uh, and stay in the, uh, in the complete focus of attention to that and the richness and the infinite nature of the silent self will, will give you many aha insights that you don't want to then uh, deviate from the meditation, but you will find yourself uh, reaching levels of clarity and empowerment that you wouldn't otherwise get to. But stay in this state, not just in formal sittings, but when you're eating, when you're walking, whatever you're doing, 
try to be as present and as silent and internalized as possible. Not going off on narratives, telling stories, getting into small talk with other people. Try to stay centered and inward and uh, be as silent as you would like to be. It's not a formally silent retreat, but be silent and uh, don't worry about hurting anyone's feelings if you don't want to talk, okay? Because the more internally silent you are, the more quickly you're going to break free of the ego's tendency to externalize and divert and, and uh, uh, forget who you really are. So stay in the silence and the inwardness and all of those horrible shadow things will come up, but don't identify with them. Let them go and then the good stuff will come up and, uh, and eventually just golden white light and bliss will come up and that's who you are. And then you're, you're done with all of those preliminary phases and, uh, and you're going to teach the next retreat. <laughs> all right. Namaste. Namaste.